The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, you have gathered us here as your people today. This church and this place, gathered with your people, met all around the world to offer up praise to you through Christ your Son, crucified that we might know you. And those of us here and those of us around the world, those who do know you by divine grace, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with what we say and what we think and how we respond. Lord, would you, because of this time this morning, would you move more closely to the center of our hearts to inhabit the midst of your people, to not be confined to the perimeter, not kept out on the edge, but come right into the midst and to dominate all that we think and all that we are, and therefore all that we do. Would you fill our minds with yourself, and particularly this morning, Lord, I pray that you would Fill our minds with some view of the truth of your coming. And that that would change how we interact with people here now. Father, you have before us a text this morning. Would you speak through it? To commission the Spirit to come and be in our midst and tell Him, Lord, please, to tell us the truth of your word and to change us by it. Use my feeble words along that path, Lord. Speak. And we pray, give grace that we would listen and be different. We pray this for Christ's glory in His church and for the spread of His glory throughout this valley, this nation, and to all of the nations. Amen. I read an article once written by a former lesbian who had become a Christian. And she was writing to share some of her story about how it was that Jesus saved her. And it revolved around the interaction that she had with a particular co-worker over the course of several years. This man was a Christian, and as soon as she found that out, she was a bit wary of him, as you might expect. But their work situation put them in close proximity to each other, and they conversed Often and eventually, her lifestyle came up, became the, the source of a, of a particular focused conversation. And she asked him, what do you think? And he told her what the Bible said. He explained to her how God viewed some of the choices that she'd made. And he was clear and honest that God, God viewed it as sin. Which was pretty much what she'd expected. But what was surprising to her, as she wrote, was the manner and the tone in which he expressed himself. Because she'd been taught, and she'd come to believe, that that message in itself was hate. And so he hated her. But as he talked with her, it didn't seem like it. She actually found that she herself was the one having to control her anger. 
And that dynamic continued on throughout their years of relationship. He being kind and polite and gracious to her as they talked about all kinds of areas of life. In fact, almost never again touched on this subject. And she still growing more and more and more angry with him. Now, obviously, I wasn't there. I don't have any idea exactly all that happened over the course of those years. I only read the article and only have her words to go on. But she says that the turning point for her and her faith came one day when she just had enough. And while he was out of the office, she went into the boss and said, issued an ultimatum. You either are going to have to dismiss this guy because, frankly, he is a closed-minded bigot who creates an oppressive work environment, or I'm going to quit. One of the two. And she stomped out and bumped right into, guess who? Returned from the downstairs coffee cart where he'd bought her a latte. And for some reason, that struck her. She reports, she began to think, you're supposed to be the villain in this story. I'm supposed to be the good person. You're the villain. And while you're downstairs buying me a coffee unsolicited, I'm in there arguing about how bad you are and why you should be fired. Huh. That got her attention. Now, I don't share this story, and she didn't write this story, to argue for coffee evangelism or to deal with every particular issue related to homosexuality and the gospel. That's a really big subject. Not going to be all addressed this morning. She wrote that, though, and I bring it up this morning to point out something. It is critical that the truth of the gospel be expressed. But that is by no means all of the issue. It's critical that the truth be expressed, but there is far more in the living out of a life that creates a context in which the truth of the gospel is expressed. For years, he lived a life that undergirded the truth that he expressed. And that's what actually spoke to her. That's the kind of thing that we're going to think about this morning in Acts 24. Two things, the truth of the gospel expressed with a life that undergirds it, that makes it reasonable and compelling, that adorns it. In Acts 24 this morning, we're, look, we're going to look at Paul's third trial. The latter half of the latter third of the book of Acts records five trials of Paul. This is the third one. The first two that we've seen occurred in the city of Jerusalem, one right after he was mobbed, in the temple worshiping, and the second before the Sanhedrin. And now today, in Acts 24, Paul is before the Roman governor Felix, who is the, the Roman ruler over this area. We look at Paul's third trial today, Acts 24. Let me read the text. I'll read the whole chapter. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, 
one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul's been transported to Caesarea, which is about 60 miles away from Jerusalem, before the governor Felix. And Felix, having some idea of what the the issue here is because of the letter that he received from the Roman governor, summons Paul's accusers and they come and they begin to make their case. And when Ananias and some members of the Sanhedrin show up, they've brought with them this Tertullus, who is essentially like a lawyer. He'd be able to make the case really well. Verses 2 to 9 relay what that case was. As was customary in in a court proceeding in that day, the the prosecution begins with words that are just blatantly attempting to persuade the judge to be on their side. They're just straight-up words of flattery. That was very common. But in this case, he goes so far over the top that it must have struck everybody in the room and everybody reading it as ludicrous. When they say to Felix... In every way and everywhere, we appreciate all of your great wisdom and foresight over our nation. It's a total lie. Felix has brought peace because he is extremely brutal. 
He's crushed several rebellions in the province, which has created not people who love him and respect him and are grateful for him, but people who are terrified of him, which doesn't display much wisdom and foresight. Instead of instituting policies that induce peace, his policy has been, this is the way it's going to be, and if you don't like it, I'm going to kill you, which has worked to some extent, but it's certainly not wise. So when they say, when, when this guy opens by saying, Felix, we love you in every way and everywhere, baloney. And what's about to follow, I, I take note of the source. And what he says continues on in the same vein. Essentially, he makes three charges, trying very hard to pin guilt on Paul. He makes three charges. One, everywhere around the whole world, meaning around the whole Roman Empire, this guy stirs up insurrection. He's in rebellion against the empire everywhere. Secondly, he's a ringleader. You hear the, the term how it's slanted there. He's a ringleader. That sounds like a criminal thing. He is a ringleader of this sect, the schismatic branch of the Nazarenes, those who follow the Nazarene Jesus, who you might recall, Felix, was executed as a criminal by the Roman governor Pilate. You can kind of see them slanting this. But the third charge is the most serious defaming the temple. And it's the most serious because it's most clear. It could be proven right now if it was true. And it's most serious because Rome has officially made a concession to Israel. Israel regarded the temple as so important and so serious that they would go to war over it. And so Rome judged it wise to make a concession and to give over jurisdiction over the temple to the Jews and allowed them to carry out their execution of anybody who defamed it. So if Paul were proven guilty of desecrating the temple, he'd be turned over to Israel and certainly killed. That's the charge they make against him, which is almost true. Remember where all this began back in chapter one, chapter 21, where some of the Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple and assumed, though it wasn't true, assumed that he had brought a Greek into the Jewish-only part of the temple, which would have desecrated it, which would have brought on him the death penalty. They assumed that, so they start a riot, they make that charge against him. But we already know, and, and Felix, the governor, already knows that's not true. Because the Roman officer, when he wrote the letter last chapter and sent it along with Paul, clarified that issue. I've investigated the only thing worthy of death. He didn't do it. So the case really is almost over before Paul speaks. But Paul does get a chance to respond. In verse 10 and following are his words. And he knows Felix has been around for a little while, and so... He's pleased to make his case before him. He understands the lay of the land here. And he refutes the charges one by one. I've only been around a short while. And part of that time, I've actually been in Roman custody. I haven't, done, haven't had time to do anything, nor have I been found in anywhere in the synagogues, in the temple, in the city streets. Nowhere have I been disputing with anybody. And that's demonstrable. Haven't done anything. And actually, when I was in the temple there to bring offerings and alms, gifts of the poor. I've been in the temple privately worshiping, purified as I was supposed to be. When some Jews from Asia accosted me, and by the way, where are those Jews from Asia? This is a serious Roman law point that he brings up here almost in passing. Roman law was very much against people who made flippant charges and didn't bother to go to court to argue them. If they make an accusation, they need to be there, and they aren't. So he knows, 
He's got a point here, and he makes that point. In fact, these guys who are here charging me, the only thing that they're qualified to speak about is what I said in front of them in the Sanhedrin about the resurrection, which isn't illegal. So why are we even here? But if what we're here about is this sect of the Nazarenes, then let it be clear, I am definitely in that group. The group called the way. Notice how he shapes this. He uses the more common term of the way, as in the way to worship the God of our fathers. It's important that he shapes it this way because Rome had allowed Judaism as an official religion, but it didn't allow the, the, the creation of all kinds of other religions. So he's saying, I am in the way, the way of worshiping the God of our fathers, and I believe everything. I am a Jew. In fact, I'm a real Jew. I believe absolutely everything in the Law and the Prophets. I believe everything that the fathers hoped for. The difference between us is that I believe it's actually happened, and they believe it will happen in the future. I'm thoroughly in line with the worship of the God of our fathers. I haven't done anything wrong. I follow the law. I haven't offended the temple. I haven't offended the Jewish law, and I haven't offended the Roman law. And Felix knows it's true. Verse 22. He's not going to do anything to him. He knows it's true. But discreetly, he doesn't release him because he doesn't want to offend the Jews. So he holds him in jail, perhaps thinking he might get some financial gain out of it, as the text later reveals. But he has no intention of summoning the, the Roman officer. He already has his testimony. This is just a tabling it until it all blows over, and then we'll deal with it later. So he keeps him in jail, not rendering a verdict. So he still holds Paul's fate in his hands, technically. And then in verses 24 and following, we see a second scene in this chapter, a private scene. Felix and his wife, Drusilla, the Jewish girl, are interested in hearing a little more about Paul's faith. And so they ask him to come and talk. Now, Drusilla at this time is a little less than 20 years old. She's Jewish, and as history records, she's gorgeous actually recorded how beautiful she was, which even at her young age has made her an object of desire of several men already. She's been previously engaged, previously married to another guy, and while married to that guy, Felix, she caught Felix's eye, and he seduced her, drew her away from that husband, and married her himself. And now the two of them sit in front of Paul and say, explain your faith in Jesus, please. So picture the scene there. This guy still holds Paul's fate in his hands, has a reputation of being quite capable of being very harsh with his opponents, and is living a life of immorality. Explain the gospel to me, Paul. How would you put it? Paul reasoned about righteousness and about self-control and about the coming judgment. And Felix was terrified. Not just afraid, the word is an intense fear. He was alarmed. As he heard Paul talk about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment to a violent, immoral man who holds his fate in his hands. He was alarmed. 
but not converted. He sent him away. We'll talk about this later. And he did talk later. Says that he had him back many more times, but it seems like the moment has passed. Felix hardens his heart in some way, it seems. He doesn't come to faith. Continues on with the conversation, but more as a distant observer, really hoping for financial gain from this. And when time passes and Felix moves on, he leaves Paul in jail. And that's where the story ends. Paul's third trial, Acts 24, two scenes. A public trial scene and a private intense conversation scene. I'm going to make one observation from each of those two scenes. And I think that together they make this central point. It's my main point for this morning. God reminds us of the end so that we'll live now in innocence and with courage. Those last two parts, the innocence and the courage, are what I'm going to elaborate on. He reminds us of the end so that we'll live now in innocence and with courage. First observation relates to the innocence. This is drawn from the trial scene and Paul's remarks there. Here's my first point. We are to adorn the gospel with innocent integrity. Adorn the gospel with innocent integrity. And when I say innocent integrity, I'm not talking about perfect righteousness, sinlessness. That's impossible. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I am getting at is an attitude that actively seeks to avoid sin, that fights against it in yourself, that tries to hold off unrighteousness and pay attention to it, be, be a close observer of your own life, and then when you do sin, to turn away from it, to keep short accounts with people, to seek to walk in righteousness and integrity. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 16, when he says, I strive, I take great pains, effort. I strive to keep a clear conscience before God and before man. Those two realms. I see that God expects things of me. He requires things of me. He has a way that he wants me to walk, and I take care to pay attention to that. And much of that, all of that for me, because I'm a human, takes place here. Much of it with other people. And so I strive also to live consistently here, to keep a clear conscience before people, so that neither God nor people could say to me, you do, you are something sinful or offensive or wrong. And if they do point that out, because I am a sinner, I will disavow it, turn away, as I did when I insulted the priest in the last chapter, I will apologize and say, you're right, the law says, that's my standard, that's what I want to hold to. It's a walk in righteousness that Paul is clearly striving for. In the eyes of God and in the eyes of human beings. Both. Now, why is that important? Well, obviously because it honors God and we obey Him. And, and obviously because it, it does connect to reward for us in heaven. The Bible's clear about that. And obviously it may, it may connect to reward here on earth. This is why Paul can argue before the, the court here, I'm innocent of this and innocent of this and innocent of this. Because he is. He has paid attention to be clear and conscious before God and before man. And so he is innocent in the court. That's a great benefit. That's not the real issue, though. 
There's, there's a larger thing going on here that connects to Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, to his larger purpose in the whole book. So step back mentally for a second and look at the whole book. Throughout this book, especially here in the latter chapters with these trials, Luke, the writer, is showing the readers Paul innocent. And before that, he's showing the readers the church innocent. The church filled with integrity. And he trots out repeatedly public organizations like councils, rulers like military officers or kings or governors. He trots them out repeatedly and relays to us their verdict. As they see this Christianity, this church, this Paul in front of them, they say, I have no problem with this. Again and again and again throughout the whole book. I have no problem with this. This seems good to me. Why are we even bothering wasting our time judging this? This is fine. These are good people. Sometimes they even almost humorously wonder out loud why anybody has a problem with this. These are good people. Think back. The Jerusalem church, bold in witness and tremendously respected by the whole city who disagreed with the message, but tremendously respected them for how they lived. The bloodshed in this book, who sheds it? Not the Christians. They're the victims. The riots, who starts them? Not the Christians, not Paul. There is a riot everywhere he goes. It's not his fault. It's everybody else's fault. At this trial, who's the only ethical man present? Paul, the guy on trial. And that's made clear to us again and again and again and again. If you try to level any charge against the Christians, against the church in this book, it comes up innocent. These people are people filled with integrity. They obey the law. They're model citizens, if you will. They are morally pure. They aid the hurting and the weak in society, casting out demons, healing lame, and, uh, lame people and demon-possessed people. They bring alms. Paul's arrested while bringing alms, gifts to the poor. And they build themselves a community that crosses economic lines, racial lines, gender lines, age lines, and displays profound help and love and sacrifice. And people saw that and were stunned by it. I recently heard that was the, the church was the only society in the first century that lived like that. Nothing else. Not the local chess club or the boating society. Nothing else crossed all those lines like the church did in integrity and innocence and uprightness and moral amazement. Do you get it there? What's going on is that the church and Luke is... It's the underlying theme throughout a lot of this book. You've got, you shall be my witnesses, and you shall live like this, to hold up this gospel, to support it. When you live like that, it adorns the gospel. As Paul would write in Titus 2, commands us to adorn the doctrine of God. To adorn it means to dress something up. Not like putting lipstick on a pig like we've heard about recently. That's trying to make something that's ugly look beautiful. 
This is to adorn something more similar to taking Cinderella out of the attic and out of her slave clothes and putting on a gown that befits her beauty. Giving her earrings that accent the color of her eyes. A ribbon or a clasp in her hair that shows off what she has on on the top of her head rather than covering it with a, a maid's bonnet. Adorning, showing the beauty that is already there. To display this gospel is good news. Look what it does. Rather than the contrary, think of how difficult it is. This gospel is good news. Try to ignore what it does. Which one of those two is more common in our country today? The gospel is good news. Look at the beauty. Look at the goodness and the righteousness and the uprightness and the integrity. Where would we be without the gospel and the church? Is that the prominent message today? Or is it more, I hear the gospel and man, I wish they would stop already because look what it does. We can't control people's response to it. But what the point behind all of this is, is that we can contribute to people's response to it, one way or the other. Strive to live with a clear conscience before God and to live then this way as loving, joyous, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled people who bless those around them rather than are a curse to them. It adorns the gospel. It supports the preaching of the message. So how do, we, how do we get there? How do we do that? Try really hard. Suck it up and get better at it. No. The text itself tells us. Look again at verse 16. The first word, or if you're reading the NAS, the first phrase. The word is either so or in view of this. What's that? Well, Look back, the verse before, verse 15. He's got something that he's looking at. Having a hope in God. Essentially that there will be a universal resurrection, which of course leads to a judgment. Seeing the end. Convinced, gripped by it, seeing it, having a real living hope that there is a time coming. When the Son of Man will descend, His angels with them, and He will take His seat on His glorious throne, and the graves will open, and the sea will give up its dead, and all will stand before Him, and He will separate the sheep from the goats like a shepherd. He will see all for what it is, and He will judge. Convinced of that, says Paul, I strive to keep a clear conscience before God and before people. There is way too much on the line to not care. To live any such way I please and to ignore those around me. To not be concerned to adorn the gospel. There's way too much on the line because there is a judgment. There is a time coming. And it concerns me. That time will evaluate me and I will receive what is due me for the deeds on the body, whether they be good or bad, says Paul about Christians. 
But I am also keenly aware that for those who are not believers, we're not just talking about rewards. We're talking about eternity. And how I live, how I carry myself matters in connection to the words that I speak. And I'm convinced of that. And so I take every effort to live not just with a clear conscience before God, but before people that they may never have grounds, according to my life, to dismiss this message. They may dismiss this message, but they won't ever be able to say, because that guy convinced me it was false by how he lived. They won't ever be able to say that about me. We have to live as people who adorn the gospel with lives of innocent integrity. And that comes from not trying really hard to be innocent and to live with integrity. It comes from looking to the gospel, particularly in this case, the judgment. You have to live like that. And you have to see, this point and the next point both, you have to see the look to the end because as a preacher, and often this happens in Christian circles, I can tell you things week after week after week. Live lives of innocent integrity. I'm going to tell you in a second to speak the gospel with fitting courage. I can tell you that. Now you have two things to do this week. And next week I'll tell you two more things to do. Week after that, two more things. And pretty soon you've got a list of 8, 10, 12, 15, 30 things you're supposed to do. Yeah, how do you do that? You can't. So you give up. What the Bible says is there's one thing to do. Live in light of the gospel. Drink it and eat it and feed on it and it will change you. Now pay attention to some of these certain things and as if the Spirit speaks to you and pricks you that this is something you need to pay special attention to, then you go to the gospel and you say, God, change this in me. It's the difference between 50 things to do or fundamentally one thing to do. Feed on the bread of life. Christ will change you. He'll draw your mind to see the end. There is. Christian, I know. Brothers and sisters here, I know every single one of us affirms there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a judgment, sure. But let's be honest. That doesn't really matter in most of our lives day to day. It should. It's real. It's appointed for man and woman and boy and girl once to die and then to face judgment. It's coming. And it's the height of deception to affirm it and then walk as if it isn't. It is. In view of the end, adorn the gospel the life of innocent integrity. And the second point, as I already said, is to speak the gospel with fitting courage. And this is the point that comes from the second scene, the private conversation with Felix. The courage here is amazing. I, I don't, I've never been in that situation. I have been in a situation where, in another country, I have been temporarily detained by police not arrested, but just temporarily detained by police. And it's frightening. Even though I was pretty confident that there's nothing that they're going to do to me and there's no charge that's going to stick against me. We're within our rights, etc., etc. But I've been in that situation, and it's pretty frightening. I don't know what it would be like to be in a situation where you're sitting across from a man 
who can kill you, no questions asked, and know that you're just about to tell him something that might really irritate him. That would be hard. That would require courage. But it's fitting courage because he's not just out to blast him. He tells him what needs to be heard. That's the key, fitting courage. They ask him to come and, and speak about his faith in Christ. And he sees them sitting there and he begins to explain some things. And we don't know all of what he said. It's just a real quick sentence giving a summary. And knowing that Drusilla was Jewish, he probably referred to some of the things that he mentioned in the trial about believing the prophets and the law. Customarily, that's what he said when he talked to Jewish people. Trying to make clear that this one that I have faith in is the Messiah, the Deliverer. But what the text explicitly emphasizes is what Felix and Drusilla most needed to hear. As Martin Luther once said, you speak the law to the unbroken, arrogant, unrepentant, and you speak grace to the broken and repentant. And Felix is in the former category. And so he speaks to him about righteousness, Felix, which you lack. Self-control, Felix, which you don't have any of. And the coming judgment, Felix, at which you will fall. And it terrified him. By the power of God, it terrified him. Now, I'm sure, because he's speaking about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he must have also mentioned grace. He must have also mentioned faith and forgiveness that follows it. But the text wants to make a point that Paul said what needed to be said. And though it alarmed him, what Felix does is stand back up in his pride. He had the, the if you will, the lid of the jar taken off and he saw everything that was in there from God's perspective for just a moment and then he puts the lid back on, tapes it over and says, we'll talk about this later. Or really, we're not going to talk about this anymore. That's tragic. It's possible that there are some people, I don't know everybody who's sitting here today, but it's possible there's some people here who need to hear this message. I don't, I don't know you, but there is a message from God that has grace and forgiveness as well as a clear expression of sin and judgment. Every single one of us sins and falls short of the glory of God. We have natures that are sinful and therefore we sin. And God who knows everything about everything in your heart, let alone your actions, looks at you and says you lack righteousness and you will fail at the coming judgment. There is only one hope, faith in Christ. His cross, when He died on the cross, He did that to pay the penalty that the wrath of God is sending on sin, on your sin coming down on you. And Christ on the cross says, I will stand in between you and that wrath if you will trust me. So please trust me. I take no pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked. Come. Believe. Be saved. 
but be very clear. There is only one way to be saved from this wrath. And if you do not come, if you close up the jar and set it aside, you will perish. That message needs to be made clear to you. Please hear it. I read a writer recently that said, nobody goes to hell without wading through the blood of Jesus to get there. He has shed his blood that if you trust it, he will clean you and forgive you. Don't overlook it, stepping by and continuing down the road that you're on. Trust him. Trust him right now. And he'll forgive you and make you his child. Some here need to hear that. Most of us already know it. The message to us then, like Paul, be courageous in fitting in appropriate ways and tell people that. Tell people what they need to hear. You don't always go around banging people with sin and, and harshness. I hope you're not harsh ever, but you don't always go around banging people with sin. We're not about morose darkness. We're about life and grace. But that message makes no sense if not set in the context of people need life and grace. So as you're talking with someone, evaluate. Where are they? What do they need to hear? Proud and arrogant? Preach the law. Broken and hurting? Preach grace. But our tendency is to preach what's easy. Easy for us or easy for the relationship here. If you're a harsh and judgmental person, which I lean more towards, it's much easier for me to pull out a really big hammer. That's, I, I naturally work that way. I can do that without thinking. That's wrong. It's not fitting. It might seem courageous. It's not fitting. Some people don't need that. It might be that you're the other way around, and it's much more easy, it's much easier for you to forget there even is a hammer anywhere, to ignore the idea of wrath and sin and just talk about forgiveness. If Paul had preached to Felix, you know, God's going to forgive you. Just kind of think about him a little bit. Obviously, he wouldn't have said that, but that's pointless. He knows what Felix needs to hear, and he courageously says it to him. We need to be people like that. How do you become someone who fittingly, with courage, speaks the gospel? Try really hard. No. This past, three times this passage mentions the resurrection in some way. It mentions the resurrection twice and the judgment once explicitly. Those are all kind of the same event. This is on Paul's mind. There is an end. And I don't want Felix to perish. And so I will tell him what he needs to hear so that he will stand at the end. And there is an end. So I strive always to keep my own conscience clear before God. Not just before Felix, but before God. And God tells me, speak to people in love and clarity what they need to hear. And I'm not going to say to God, no, I'd rather speak what I'd like to say. What's easier for me? What keeps Paul away from that is the vision of the end. 
see it, Christian. C.S. Lewis once said that we all rub shoulders with eternal beings. There isn't a single ordinary person you know. Every single person you've met is going to live forever. Somewhere. And there is way too much at stake to try to forget that. Too much at stake for you and especially for them. In view of the end, live a life of innocent integrity. And in view of the end, speak the gospel with clarity, with fitting courage, in timeliness. These two things fit together. They must. We must express the truth and we must adorn the truth with a life that is compelling. Would you think, do you think, to buy a cup of coffee for the coworker who hates you? For the neighbor who doesn't give you the time of day? Do you live like that? The church must. Because there's too much at stake not to. In view of the end, live in innocence and with courage. Let me pray. Father, would you do a work in our lives? In the lives of those here who don't know you, Lord, would you open their eyes and show them whatever it is they need to see. Show them yourself. Show them themselves. Illumine grace. Show them sin. Speak. Spirit, I pray, you who are commissioned to convict the world of sin and righteousness in the coming judgment, do so now, I pray. And Father, would you speak to those who are your children here and would you illumine in our minds the reality of the end. The fact that Christ will come. There will be a judgment. That everything rides on it. And therefore that you've called us to live and speak in certain ways. Make that clear to us, Lord, and change us from the inside Lord, renew your people, sanctify your people, embolden your people, I pray. For the glory of Christ, for the growth of your church. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.